Imagine getting to speak around the world, meeting the most successful, positive leaders, and then getting to choose from that group. That's what this leadership podcast is all about. Learning from the best, how to be your best, so that we can challenge ourselves to lead with purpose, impacting lives and changing communities. I'm so glad you're part of this leadership podcast community, where together we learn, lead, and leave a lasting legacy. Welcome to Garage to Goliath. I'm Dan Quiggle, and I'm honored to have Mark Hirschberg joining us today. Mark is a chief technology officer, speaker, MIT instructor, and author of The Career Toolkit, Essential Skills for Success That No One Taught You. Mark has spent his career launching and facilitating the growth of various startups and Fortune 500 companies. He graduated from MIT with multiple degrees, including physics, electrical engineering, and computer science. His experience ranges from dark web cybersecurity to developing MIT's Career Success Accelerator program, and even being a nationally ranked ballroom dancer. We're gonna have to talk more about that. You're gonna make me look bad with my wife. His primary focus these days is giving people the tools they need in order to succeed in the job world and advice most go through years of schooling without learning. So Mark, thank you for joining us. So the first question I have to ask, you track criminals on the dark web and you know, while you're working in cybersecurity, what was that like and how did you get into that? It sounds like a thing out of a movie. Now, in fact, it's kind of logical given where I started. I graduated from MIT and my graduate work was in cryptography. That's the branch of cybersecurity that creates secret codes, protects your data online. And while most of the work I do is protecting data, how do we make sure your credit card stays safe when you use it online? In this case, it was a little more offensive. We would go onto the dark web and do intelligence gathering. We'd see what are the bad guys up to? What are they planning? and would share that with our customers who included various large corporations and government agencies. And they would use that to better plan their defenses. I would liken us to Paul Revere, who would say the British are coming by land or by sea. So by knowing where the attacks are coming from and how they're going to come, our customers could better marshal their resources. And these days more than ever, I mean, these companies, these the, even the, the government agencies need this kind of help, don't they? Absolutely because no matter how good they are, there's always some area where we've got some extra data that can help them be more effective. So let's go back to the beginning there, just because I'm curious about this. So how would the average person even get into something like that if they were interested in it? I've got kids going through college. I'm sure they're, you know, they love being on computers. They love all that. So how would they get involved? If you're interested in cybersecurity in general, there's many ways to do it. Uh, This in particular, there are certain more specific ways. So you could just study cybersecurity. You could learn how computer systems work, how you can hack them, how you can defend them. You could learn cryptography, my area, which is more mathematical and is more fundamental to how this all works. You could take classes in different languages and different cultures. So we had people working in our company who knew many languages, a lot of languages like Russian, Farsi, Portuguese, Chinese, because many hackers speak these languages. And so if you know the language, as we would do this intelligence gathering, we needed analysts, just like what you would have at certain agencies. Or you can start your career working at one of those agencies. And when you leave, you can come work for a company like that one. 
So I, I want my listeners to think about that for a second. If you're not happy in your job, if you're if you're looking for a change, I mean, th- there's always a different direction you can go. Follow your passion, and uh, it's neat that you were able to follow your passion. I, I was looking at your background, and I think it's so interesting, Mark. You hold degrees in computer science, electrical engineering, physics. Was education always something that came easy to you or that you were always interested in? It was. I'm very lucky that I have parents who both have advanced degrees. My dather, my my father is a physician. My mother has her graduate work in K through five education, early childhood education. And so they emphasized education with me. I enjoyed it and they were very supportive of it. And I'm very grateful for that. So out of all these different degrees, is there one that you kind of hold dearly, one that's your favorite and where you've been able to focus? I'd say physics. Now, I don't use physics in terms of the domain knowledge. I am no longer trying to figure out the velocity of a block going down an inclined plane. But what physics really teaches you is how to model and solve problems. And that fundamental critical thinking, the way to look at problems and analyze them, that has served me through all my different roles in software development, in management, in leadership, in media, in all the different areas I work in. And so I'm very glad I studied physics, even though I didn't go on and become a physicist. So so talk to me, because you talked about leadership and you talked about management. So from a physics standpoint, how did that help you? What advice would you give somebody using that background? When you study physics, what you learn is how to model a problem. So in the classic, you have a car rolling down the hill and you're trying to figure out its speed. We teach you, well, we're going to ignore resistance for this problem, unless it's some advanced class and that's what you're doing. You say, let's just model it and pretend the car is a solid block. We're not gonna worry about some of these details. Those are not relevant, they're just noise, but the angle of the slope is, gravity is, we have to worry about these things. Then we also teach you techniques in that particular problem, you do something called rotating the coordinate space. Instead of looking at in your classic XY coordinates, you rotate the XY coordinates and suddenly the problem becomes much more tractable. And when you do lots and lots of problems like these, not just that, but in quantum mechanics and other parts of physics, you start to say, okay, I'm getting practice at given a problem, what is relevant? And then what's just extraneous information that's just going to distract me. And when I look at a problem when it seems intractable, how can I look at in a different way? How can I rotate that coordinate space? Or how can I try a different problem solving approach to try and do this. And when it comes to leadership, that I find really interesting. It's why I got into it because there is an answer for figuring out how to determine the velocity of the car at the bottom of the slope. There's a simple method to do and everyone solves it the same way. But for leading, no two leadership situations are exactly the same. And anytime you can come up with a rule, you can almost always find a counterexample to it. So you have to really understand how to model that problem, how to think about what's relevant, what's not, what's important, what could derail what you're trying to do, and then look at the right way to come up with the solution you need. So I absolutely love that, by the way. And I want my listeners to think about that for a second, because here are my takeaways from that, what he just said, what Mark just said, is is you got to get rid of all the noise, right? Get back to the facts. Be, it's almost like the neutral thinking mentality, like not too positive, not too negative, but literally what are the facts that we have to deal with? And then the second part that I loved was looking at it from different perspectives and, and not just from your own perspective, but other people's perspectives, how it affects them within the work environment or within the team environment. 
And so I think that when you start caring about things like that as a leader, it's you're going to be far more successful in 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 actually tackling problems, be, you know, coming out the other side even better than when you started. So thank you for that. A great, interesting perspective from a math side. I could tell you're from the engineering side. That's awesome. You know, it, it is interesting because you are clearly are, you know, skilled with technology. When you were little, do you have any memories of like ripping apart computers, doing things differently, trying to kind of go above and beyond there? Like, has this always been your thing? It has been. I played with lots of Legos. I went to chess camp. I was a competitive chess player. We did build some early robots. I had a chemistry set. So all the classic 80s nerd experiences, I was doing that. Oh, you don't have to say nerd experiences. What are you talking about? That means <laughs> you're probably you're probably running the, the company now for all those other guys who weren't playing chess and doing all these other things. So those, that's all part of leadership and part of being the, your best self. I, I think it's interesting. My son, he, by the way, just side note, loves chess and plays all the time and just loves just completely destroying our entire family in chess his older brother, his older sister, mom, dad, he just loves it. So um, he has a passion for that as well. And I love seeing that side of him and yeah, he enjoys it. So I think that, well, you know, I, I've got some nerd pride okay. uh, though in the eighties being a nerd was challenging. In fact, being a nerd today is great. It's useful. And in fact, it's the pros and cons of being a nerd that helped me become successful because whereas for other people, they were natural born leaders, natural born communicators, natural it's on these skills we talk about. I was not. I was very left brained. I didn't understand these skills I wasn't good at. So when it came time to learn it, I applied these frameworks, how to learn things, how to break them down and understand what is leadership about? How do you communicate effectively? And that helped me understand the components to be effective in these skills and then ultimately to teach these skills to others. So Mark, I'm so glad you said that because it's one of the most commonly asked questions I get. So can you learn and become a leader? And I'm like, absolutely you can. And by the way, leadership comes in so many different sizes and shapes and cultures and backgrounds and attitudes. And and uh, I have this Quiggle assessment and we have the creator and, and, and the director and the explorer and the guardian, the analyst, the royal. And it's funny, I'm like, there are a lot of really detail-oriented leaders, really caring leaders they're called servant leaders, you know, really creative leaders. They just lead differently. And so a lot of this is just kind of finding your own way. So if you're out there and you're thinking you're not fitting into this mold of leadership, don't let anyone tell you can't lead. I think everyone has the opportunity to be a leader and to influence others in a positive way. It's a lot like sports. There are natural born athletes, but it doesn't mean the rest of us who aren't natural can't train and learn and often get better than those who just rely on their natural talents, but don't really focus on improving. Yeah, no, definitely. I'd love and a great, great analogy. I, I think anyone who knows anything about technology knows the reputation of, of MIT and uh, it's, you helped create, cause let's talk about this for a second. You helped create their career success accelerator. How does it feel to see uh, their current student, you know, current students go through your program, something that you were you're part of? I love that feeling. I love working with undergrads. I love seeing them go further, go out into the world. And we've had some very successful alumni from our program. I love watching a transformation. The great thing about this program, this is not us lecturing at the students saying, write this down, memorize this. We give them enough of that in some of their other classes. This is a transformational experience where we unlock 
how they can view these different skill sets. I liken it to we open the door for them. We could spend many semesters trying to teach them just to be a leader. There are whole graduate programs on this. We can't do all of that in the time we have, but if we can open their eyes to how to view leadership, as you were just mentioning earlier, suddenly they see a path before them that wasn't there before, and that sets them off on new opportunities. And that's what I love seeing. So you teach there annually. What is that? What do you like to teach on the most? And how does that correlate with your book? And, and how did that kind of weave into your book and the topic and, and the subject? There's no one thing I love teaching the most because there's no one skill that matters more than every other or no one skill that's best for everyone. Different people have different needs. From having taught this for 20 plus years, I wanted to reach a larger audience. So at MIT, we have a set of skills that we teach them. Leadership, communication, team building, networking, negotiating. These are skills we all know, but if you think about it, we never teach them to anyone. We always tell people networking, it's so important. It's not what you know, it's who you know. Well, if it's so important, how come no one bothered to teach me in all my years of education? That's great. So at MIT, we put together a program to do this and we figured out how. We have world-class researchers, we have professional practitioners like myself, and we come together, we've created this content, and we know how to teach it very effectively. Now, as I mentioned, this is not a lecture class. The students aren't saying they're taking notes, they're doing, they're trying. So for years, I encouraged MIT, I said, we have to put out some notes to the students because they're not taking notes, and of course they forget it as soon as the semester's over. I also want us to expand to other schools, but for various reasons, we didn't have the resources to really invest in this. So I thought, let me just write up some notes for the students and I can share this with others. I can get it out to a larger audience, but 20 pages became 40, became 80. And once it passed hundred, I said, I don't think these are notes anymore. And I turned into the book and the corresponding app and put it out there. And the great thing about it, having taught for so many decades, I know how to teach this. And the feedback I get is, oh, I was reading your book and you said something and then you had a question, but as soon as I flipped the page, you answered it. Well, yes, that's because I've taught this so long. I know exactly what you're going to ask next after I've said this. So love that. And, and it's such a competitive job world out there. So a lot of my listeners you know, are either maybe in the job market themselves or maybe they have kids that are just graduating from college. How does your book help them get the job of their dreams or at least help them move in that direction? In many ways, this book is written for people throughout their careers. Yes, new college grads and people in their 20s, but we have readers in their 30s, 40s, 50s, anyone who says they wanna get better at these skills. Now it can help starting from chapter one, creating a career plan. So many people have no plan. We'd never get away with that at work. I couldn't say to my CEO, yeah, I'm not gonna bother with any type of project plan because let me just wing it see where we wind up. That's not an acceptable answer, but when it comes to our career, we say, well, hey, I'm gonna wing it and hope I wind up there. Hope is not a strategy. So we want to create a plan. Now the plan is never going to work out as we thought it would. That's true of our work projects, that's true of our careers. But by having the plan, we're going to increase our chances of success. We're gonna be more directed in what we do. We're gonna figure out if we're off plan, Maybe that's even okay. Maybe we're gonna change our plans, but we're more conscientious instead of just hoping the winds carry us to where we wanna go. 
So it starts with that, and then it goes into these other skills, the ones we've mentioned, networking, negotiating, communicating. And the great thing about the book, you don't have to read it in order. You can jump right to, let's say, chapter 10 ethics, if that's something that you're really thinking about. Then jump back to networking in chapter eight. You can just jump around and pick up the skills as you need it, or even just focus on one skill at a time. So you touched on, on the fact that a lot of these schools are missing some of these things and they're not preparing the students. What are some of the major shortcomings that you've seen uh, through your years of experience? Like, What should we be focusing on? These skills, we know they are necessary. It, we didn't just make this up one night in a dream. We've surveyed companies and companies have said over and over again, these are the skills we wanna see. I've seen this come out of MIT. I've seen similar research at other universities corporations are consistently telling us they want to see these skills but we don't teach it and it's because academia is aligned to the department level and you have departments who say well we're accountants and we're going to figure out what you need to know to be an accountant or a chemist or whatever that field is and they don't think about beyond the domain knowledge what's useful so we really need to change education ideally the educational system the high school and college level will include this because they're not doing so, we're going to have to take it on ourselves, either individually or through corporations to upskill people to get these skills that make them so much more effective. So I'm, I'm so glad you brought this up. So I spoke at USC here in Southern California for Marshall School of Business. And it was so interesting because there were, you know, a couple hundred graduate students in there. And these kids were chasing me down the hallway. And they're like, no one's teaching us this stuff because, you know, it was all an emotional intelligence and leadership and how we show up. And, and it was it was so interesting. So I, I do think that there is an absolute need to have real life experiences you know, when it comes to negotiation, for example, or ethics. And, you know, it is, I, I found it fascinating that in your book, you talked about kind of you intertwined politics and office politics and how to deal with that and touching on those issues. When you talk about the, that specific issue, what are some of the main points that you make? Here's a great example of a skill we never talk about. And yet, even if you are absolutely brilliant, you are the best at solving whatever problem you solve within your domain. If you can't navigate the politics of the office, your voice goes unheard. Your contributions don't get used. And so in this case, most people look at office politics as a dirty word. Oh, this is, this is bad. What I always teach people, it's a tool. If you think of a knife, a knife can take the life in the hands of a criminal or it can save a life in the hands of a surgeon. The tool is there, it just depends how you use it. Politics isn't necessarily bad. Just like governance politics, when we go and vote and govern our fellow citizens, it's not bad, it's well-intentioned. Now, some people misuse it, and of course it leads to certain bad outcomes, but also leads to a lot of good outcomes. It's just how it's used by the individual members. So we can use corporate politics. There's some use in that. And to just say it's bad and ignore it, it's bad for the individuals, it's bad for the company to pretend it doesn't exist. Let's recognize it, let's make sure it's a positive one, just like we're talking about how do we make politics and society a benefit and not a problem. Let's do that within our corporations and we can use that to be more effective within the organization that helps us individually and that helps the organization overall. So Mark, the best part about that is is just talking about real life, because that, that is real life. You have to deal with that. You can try to ignore it, but if you want to be successful, it's like being on a team. I mean, you're going to have to deal with the coach and other players 
and you know the dads may be friends and so next you know with the coach and, and the other kid's father and so next thing you know they're they're starting and you're not i mean that's just the reality of life i saw that growing up in sports I, I do think it's interesting that we have this chance to make a difference in everybody else's life. And, and I, what I love about your book, and I, I encourage my listeners to, to get it, and we'll put a link to, to your book, if you don't mind, is that it just talks about real life and real success and how to get there and gives you kind of a path to get there. And, and also teaches you real world, you know, real world, gives you real world advice. Um, so what's one piece of advice? And, and I, I love this question from this perspective. Like, what's one piece of advice that you would give your younger self uh, from the career toolkit? Focus on developing these skills. So here's the example I used to sell it. Suppose you are 22 years old and you go and learn to negotiate. We're not talking about becoming the world's best negotiator. We're talking about just learning a little something, getting better than the average, because the average is pretty much nothing. If you have a job offer at 22 for $60,000, but instead of taking it, you say, well, I've learned to negotiate. Maybe you read my book, maybe a different book. Doesn't matter, you've learned to negotiate. And you negotiate and get $61,000, $1,000 more. That's not a big lift. Say, okay, great, took me five, 10 minutes of negotiating got $1,000 more. If you do nothing else, if you sit in this job for the next 40 years, you've just earned $1,000 more for 40 years. Just getting a little bit better, putting a little bit of effort there, you just got $40,000. That's insane. If you tell this to a 22-year-old, every 22-year-old is going to say, I want to learn to negotiate. Now, of course, we know you're not gonna stay in that job for 40 years. You're going to have promotions and raises and other opportunities, and you're going to get more than $1,000 each time. If you learn to negotiate, you can add hundreds of thousands of dollars to your lifetime earning. And of course, it's not just about negotiating salary. We negotiate with partners, with suppliers. We negotiate with coworkers all the time and getting more effective outcomes there is useful. So if you think about learning to negotiate, it has this huge ROI for just getting a tiny bit better. Now, here's the big secret. It's easy to do the math here. You can say $1,000, 40 years. Okay, I get it. The same is true for all of these skills. If we get a little bit better at networking or leading or communicating or team building, you get a similar ROI. No one's going to say you're a better networker. Here's $1,000 more, but it leads to more opportunities. It leads to more knowledge. It leads to more understanding. If you're a better leader, you are engaged in more projects, you're seen a certain way. So getting just a little bit better on any of these skills has a massive return. So I challenge my listeners to, to look at Mark's book and take each chapter and maybe set a benchmark of where you are today and then where you, you can become. Because I think that's, you know, my goal, Mark, if, if you don't, I know we don't know each other really well, but I want to go to bed just a little bit smarter each day, right? I want to learn something just a little bit more, whether that's a language or business or whatever it is, you know, I, I challenge myself to do that. Well, I challenge my listeners to, to do the same thing with this, with this toolkit, with this, with Mark's book and to really take each chapter, uh, take it to heart, um, set that benchmark and see if you can get better. I, I will say, what do you think is the most common mistake? So let's talk about other individuals for a second. You're an entry level worker. Um, you're trying to move up. What are the common mistakes that they make early on? People focus on answering the question given and they don't think about asking the right questions. 
This comes from how we were educated. If you think back to school, we literally had a test with a blank and our job was to put the correct answer in that blank spot. That's what we did in primary school and high school and college. When it comes to work, we begin that way where we're told as the entry level person, you need to get this answer. Now the answer might be how to code a feature, how to produce the accounting report for the month, how to come up with a social media campaign, and that's fine. And that's how we start. But it's not just about answering the question, it's asking the right questions to unlock greater value to our customers, whether that customer is internal, someone in the company who you're providing help or resources to, or to our external customers. So when we can teach people to think not just about the question given, but look at the bigger picture and provide more value, that's how people advance. And that's a difference in how you need to think about it. So again, to all my listeners, are you asking the right questions? I mean, to, to your boss, to your coworkers, to your clients. And, and by the way, that helps make sure that you're providing to them what they actually want. I mean, we may spend a lot of time working on things that they're not even interested in, or they're not a priority to them. So I encourage uh, my listeners to make sure that we're asking the right questions. And Mark, that's a great nugget, good, good advice. So your background, we have this, this cannot be, we have to talk about this ballroom dancing. You've won awards uh, as a dancer. I'm curious, how did you get started in that? Where did that come from? Cause there's this engineering background, this physics background, and then all of a sudden now you're a ballroom dancer winning awards. Not many people know this, but MIT actually has one of the best ballroom dance teams in the country. And I was lucky enough to get involved. I started joining the ballroom dance club. And then I dated a woman who was into dancing. I got her into ballroom dancing. She then decided she wanted to compete, which apparently meant I had also decided that I wanted to compete. But I'm very glad that decision was made for me because it got me into the competitive world. And I loved ballroom dancing. It was so much fun. It took me all over the country. I met wonderful people, great exercise. I unfortunately don't compete anymore. I'm retired from the competitive circuit. I just social dance sometimes, but it was one of the best periods of my life. So first of all, for a man who has to go, you know, I'm dragged kicking, screaming, you know, to salsa dancing lessons and everything else for my wife, you're making me look really bad right now that you not only did it, you embraced it, took it around the country and was very successful in it and still do it. So I commend you for that. Maybe there's something that I need to learn from this podcast uh, is to try to be better, try to engage, try to uh, try new things more often. So I appreciate that. Being someone who provides so much advice for others, what was the best piece of advice that was given to you? That probably comes from my mom, who very early taught me nothing ventured, nothing gained. And it was about taking calculated risks in life. And I am so glad I have done that because I never would have gotten anywhere if I just said, I don't want to take a chance. I don't want to face failure or rejection. Yeah. And, and you know, right now, actually, it's so timely that you said that because we're actually writing a blog on taking risk and kind of even the science behind it. It's very interesting. And I look back on my life, you know, one of the biggest risks I ever took was when I was 20 years old and I had a great job and I could have just stayed there. And instead I, I left to start a business and there were probably people in my life who thought I was crazy because, you know, I had benefits and nice salary and everything else. And, and yet it was probably the best piece, you know, the best decision I ever made to take that risk. So nothing ventured, nothing gained. Great advice from your mom. And I'm sure she would appreciate the fact that you're talking to her, talking about her on this podcast. What is the most rewarding part about your life? The thing that you enjoy doing the most right now? I am very lucky because in my job, I work as a CTPO, a chief technology slash product officer. 
either full-time at a company, sometimes I do it as a fractional role, I get to work on really interesting projects with interesting people. We produce some really great products, which I love. And then in my dual career, all the teaching and speaking and work that I do, I get to help other people be more effective in their lives, find more success and happiness. What a great <laughs> life I get to lead. I get to do both of these things. You know, it, it's so fun to hear you say that because I feel like if you don't mind me saying, you know, the exact same way, it's when you, I, I call it success to significance, right? When, you, when you've when you had whatever level of success, that can be defined in so many different ways. But when you finally realize the impact that you can have over other people's lives, by the way, positive and negative, right? When you, when you, when you go down that path to provide a positive difference in their life, it makes a huge difference, doesn't it? And it feels so good. So I, I again, I, th I think I just would challenge people out there to look at their lives and see if they're making that kind of impact, if they're enjoying what they're doing, if they're finding joy in the everyday. And uh, when you when you are able to do that, it just it makes life so much easier and so much more fun. I, um, I thought it was interesting that on your website, it mentioned that you're known for your Halloween parties. So I have to know what makes a great Halloween party and why are you known for that? That's awesome. The most important element to any party is the people. If you invite good, interesting, fun people, it's going to be a good time. Now, Halloween, you throw in a bunch of costumes and decorations and you just love it, it gets even better. So I've always loved Halloween. I'm a social person. Up until the pandemic, I was doing a number of parties a year, usually about four or five parties a year. And this is in a New York City one bedroom apartment. But I'd have people over, I'd socialize, I'd get to know people personally, professionally. And Halloween being one of my favorite holidays, I have three boxes worth of decorations, which in a New York City apartment, that is a big commitment to take up that much room <laughs> and storage. But that's how much I love Halloween. I decorate my apartment every year. So you keep giving us these great nuggets, even though you're talking about Halloween party, you say, listen, you want a good party, it's the people, right? But you want a good company, it's the people. You want a good sales team, it's the people. And, and in the end, like you said, if you want a great party, it's the people. And when you put the right people into an organization, the right people into a party, the right people into a sales team, uh, you're going to have success. And so it, it matters when you're interviewing, when you're, when you're looking for uh, new additions, and even when you're trying to keep people. You know, I always said that when you have a negative person on a team, it's like a cancer eating away at a body. And until that's cut out, it will continue to eat away. And so sometimes you do have to make tough decisions on probably who you invite to that party or who, who you invite to be part of your team. But in the end, it absolutely matters. So Mark, to, to kind of finalize here and, and wrap it up, any last words that you'd like to provide for our listeners? Because first of all, I've enjoyed getting to know you and I've enjoyed all your uh, words of advice, but any last words? I want to give an important tip on how best to learn these skills, because we traditionally learn by sitting there and just getting information thrown at us. That comes from our teachers, from the book, from a podcast. It's just information transfer. And that's fine. That's a great way to learn when you're learning history or calculus or the periodic table. It's just memorizing facts. But these skills that we're talking about, networking, communication, team building, leadership, you can't learn that way. There is no formula to memorize for leadership. There's no three steps to master communications. These are subtle, complex skills. And so the best way to learn them is by doing. I liken it to learning sports. You can't just say, I'm going to teach you everything you need to know about basketball. Done. 
nor can you say, I'm going to send you to a two day training program and that's it. You never have a basketball team where you say, well, I sent you to a two day clinic done. No more training for you. You learned everything. Then you need to keep practicing. And so we can do this inside our organizations because the best way to learn these skills is in groups. So I recommend people create peer learning groups in their organization, create groups of about six to eight people. And what you do is you want to give them some content. Yes, you can use my book and I break down. Here's how I use sections. If you don't want to use my book, use a different book, use articles, use a great podcast like this one and listen to the episodes, read some pages, whatever the content is, you then discuss it in the group. Because as we, let's say, read your blog post on leadership and we talk about she's going to have a different perspective than I'm going to have. And I'm going to say, oh, wow, I never would have thought of it that way. And then someone else says, you know, I have a leadership challenge coming up. Here's what I'm thinking of. Now, in the real world, you can't have a practice. I can't say, everyone, I'm going to lead for the afternoon. And then if I screw it up, say, no, wait, do over. That didn't count. That was just practice leading. You can't do that. But in this group, when someone says, I have a leadership challenge, here's what I'm thinking, everyone else can chime in and say, well, I might try it this way, or what about that? That's how we can get some practice. Or you can do actual role playing or case studies that you can buy from top business schools. Someone might say, hey, I tried this, and here's what worked, and here's what didn't. That's like watching the tape that we do in sports to see what am I doing wrong, or what's the other team doing, what can I learn? So by doing it in these small groups, you get a number of advantages. First, you upskill your entire team. Second, you help to foster internal relationships. Those internal networking skills are so important. Third, you engage your employees. Very important during the great resignation, when employees want to know that you care about them and you are engaging them with more than just here's some money, go do work. And finally, you create a common language. If everyone heard that podcast, everyone read that book, you can reference the story, the analogy, the terminology, and you have a common language for communicating. And all of this is free. There was nothing you had to do. You can just do this yourself. I have a free download on my website to help you do it. There's nothing to buy unless you want to buy a book, but you can do this all for free and upskill your entire organization. Unbelievable advice and great offer. Thank you, by the way. You know, it reminds me of John Wooden. So John Wooden, you know, great UCLA basketball coach, he was coaching a basketball team, but every practice he would take part of that wooden pyramid, you know, friendship, integrity, and they would spend a lot of time talking about it, investing in others. And what you're talking about, Mark, is a leader within a company taking groups of people and allowing them to work together to be the best version of themselves. And when everyone wins, everyone wins, right? When we invest in, and when, when you invest in somebody like that and give them that time to, to be better, what do they want to give you? Everything everything not because they have to because they want to and we know in our own soul there's a difference so I, I just love that you ended with that and and i just can't thank you enough for your time hey mark so where can people reach out to you can we get your website any information you can go to my website thecareertoolkitbook.com there you can see more about the book including where to buy it follow me on social media or get in touch with me you can download the free companion after the book which has all the great tips and one a day will pop up on your phone through a notification system you don't even have to open the app that's going to help you retain the information and then the resources page has a number of great free downloads all available including interview skills career planning questions and even a framework for how to upskill your entire organization all of this at thecareertoolkitbook.com 
Well, I encourage my listeners to go there. Mark, thank you for joining us today, giving the kind of advice that people could actually truly use. And you know what I mean, that there's a difference there, right? Your expertise, your experience, highly valuable. Fortunate to have you on the show today. Thank you very much. Also, please rate, review, and subscribe to this leadership podcast on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. Your feedback helps us improve and also gets the message out to more listeners around the world. To rate, review, and subscribe, please visit quigglegroup.com forward slash iTunes. Thank you for listening to Garage to Goliath. I'm Dan Quiggle. Lead well.